<clears throat> Guys, last week, for those of you who perhaps might be here for the first time, we're doing, um, I don't know how long it's going to be, um, actually probably pretty long, um, because the more I read, the more I study, the longer it gets, and, but we're doing a little series here on God the Father, and it really came out of, um, out of Exodus chapter 6 where God says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And so I thought, you know, this is why you have to study the Old Testament. And so we've launched this thing into this, a, a real focus on God the Father. One of my points last week, you may recall, I hope, is that I mentioned the parable of the prodigal son. And um, it is Christianity's number one story. It is Christianity's number one parable. It's the favorite of everybody. Maybe the Good Samaritan comes in second, but it comes in a distant second to the, the parable of the prodigal son. But I told you then, or last week, I said um, that the parable of the prodigal son is about the father. It's not about the two sons. And I, and I quoted the opening verse, which says, there was a man who had two sons. It's not, there were two sons who had a man, or had a father. There's a man <clears throat> who had two sons. It's about the father. And guys, I, I, if you've read widely of, about the prodigal son, it is criticized by many because there's no statement of the Savior in it. There's no mention of atonement or redemption. And people find that as a flaw. It's not a flaw, ladies and gentlemen. The parable is about the father. <clears throat> now, so I, I mentioned that last week. Let me, let me open up with the other uh, uh, two, uh, two more observations that I want you to... Uh, see, one of them is found in Hebrews chapter 10. So if you've got a Bible, if you can find Hebrews, it's in the New Testament for some. Um, Hebrews chapter 10. I want to read you something that Jesus said, okay? Um, <clears throat> this is in Hebrews 10, beginning at um, verse 5. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said. You see that? Christ came into the world and he said. Who said? Well, that's pretty simple, isn't it? Jesus said. This is what Jesus said. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken, you, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, that is Jesus said, <clears throat> behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus said that, ladies and gentlemen. The thing that is uppermost in the mind of Jesus Christ, when he arrived, when he carried out his purposeful living, his intent was, his focus was, was the will of his father. Everything that you know about Jesus, whatever he did and all that business, whatever you might know about him, it was all designed to accomplish the will of his father. And that's pretty impressive, I think. Let me show you one other little ditty <clears throat> it's found in first corinthians chapter 15 that great chapter on the resurrection 
1 Corinthians 15. Um, I think people read the first 11 verses of 15 and don't read the rest, but um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. Now, you're, you're going to have to stay with me because I'm going to have to explain some pronouns here, but verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, that him is a reference to the second person of the Trinity. You can find that in verses 26 and 27, okay? But when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, that's God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that's the second person of the Trinity, that God may be all in all. Gang, do you see what's being said? <clears throat> that the Son, as soon as all the enemies are, his enemies are put at his feet, the Son is going to take all of that and put it at the Father's feet. Why? Why is he going to do that? So that his Father, God, may be all and in all. Folks, the Son will be subject to the Father. <clears throat> and yet we don't know much about the Father. I guarantee the Son does. That's why you've heard me say, and I've said it a couple of times, I'm going to say it again. Folks, the scheme and the plan of redemption is theocentric. The gospel is Christocentric. The gospel is about Christ and him crucified. But the plan of redemption is theocentric. It, it's going to consummate with everything being put at the feet of the Father. Now, guys, um, <clears throat> um, I, I've got to be very careful. Um, I in no way uh, do I want to detract from or lower or minimize or lessen the centrality of Christ in our proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel is that Jesus saves. As he does, he does so to carry out the will of his father. And once he has finished that grand and glorious role, he will take it and himself and be subject to the father. So I have to be very careful that you not hear something that will in any way detract from the accomplishments of the son of God on our behalf. But I've got to rebalance some things. Um, let me show you, um, you're in first Corinthians 15, go to second Corinthians chapter one, second Corinthians chapter one, verse three, Paul says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now folks, all I'm, all I'm drawing your attention to is that as Paul begins this second letter to the Corinthian church which is probably the third letter, but be that as it may, um, he says, his first notation after he's done the little preliminary, how do y'all doings, 
After that, the first thing that he says is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How about going to Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. My goodness. Paul? I mean, um, are, are you a little skewed, Paul? No, ladies and gentlemen, it's us that's skewed. And by the way, one more time. First Peter. <clears throat> chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It seems it always comes right after these, these greetings. Then when they finally get their letter going, it's always in verse 3. But notice what Peter does. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have I heard that someplace before? Yes, I have. I heard him say it to the Corinthians. I heard him say it to the Ephesians. And now it's Peter talking to the diaspora. And they both say the same thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So a moment ago, I said, I got to be very careful. But you know what? I don't think Paul was. I don't think he had that concern. I don't think Peter was. Or he wouldn't have started his letter out like that. Um, because in their minds, everything that the son was up to was in an effort to accomplish the will of the Father. And so they erupt with these, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So P Paul wasn't careful. Peter wasn't careful. And neither were the reformers, ladies and gentlemen. If you've never heard of this, I'm sorry, but all of Reformation doctrine, which you consider yourself a part of, eventually came to be summarized under something called the five solas. Um, there was sola gratia. There was sola... Fides. There was sola Christus. There was sola Scriptura. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, um, Rome loves these things. The thing that Rome doesn't love is this. The Protestant Reformation wasn't fought over this. The Protestant Reformation was fought over this. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. Scripture alone. But I left one out. Because there's five of them. And that's only four. 
sola deo gloria. God's glory alone. So here we are, um, 500 years later, and we're still off balance. We're still imbalanced. And so my offering in this little series is to try and rebalance things. I, I want to try and rebalance things that have been made unbalanced because of dispensationalism. You say, well, now, Dr. Young, that's not fair. I mean, uh, why, uh, why, are you blaming, uh, why are you blaming dispensationalism for all that? I mean, uh, that's, not, that's not right, what you just did there. I mean, you're just blaming the dispensationalists for that? Well, well, let me explain why I do. Folks, we're going to call this redemptive history. We'll call this Genesis one and two, and we'll call this the new heavens and the new earth down here, okay? That's redemptive history. All of redemptive history. Um, Christ crucified down here. The Holy Spirit descending down here, over here. And this is the new heavens and new earth. Okay, that's redemptive history. All of it. That's the timeline, okay? There it is. Here's what dispensationalism has done. If you, don't, if you don't believe this, just go get your C.I. Schofield Bible out, and you'll find it in there. And by the way, if you have a C.I. Schofield Bible, please throw it away. <laughs> um, they have seven, actually they have more than seven. There's really nine, but we'll just try to mention seven. Dispensations. A dispensation, I tell you what, I'll read from C.I. Schofield. Let me give you his definition. <clears throat> a dispensation is a period of time during which man is tested in respect to obedience in some specific revelation of the will of God. That's a quote from C.I. Schofield. So in dispensationalism, they had seven dispensations. This is called the age of innocence. It was a period of time. Then the second one was, I think, now I don't know, I'm not a dispensationalist, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a common analyst. But so I don't know this is, but I think the second one is called conscience. Boy, that looks like conscience, doesn't it? Uh, I should have a conscience about writing like that. But, um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, and then the third one is called government. And by the way, the, the, the one of the government goes all the way over to, to when the Holy Spirit comes in Pentecost. Then there's this age of grace, which we're in. Of course, the New Testament started right about here. But all this stuff back here, that was a different dispensation. A dispensation 
that shouldn't matter to us according to dispensationalism. I want to read to you just one sentence from uh, Charles Cook. Gang, some of you um, have books in your library that are published by the David C. Cook uh, Publishing House. Um, there's several publishing houses, Erdman's and, um, uh, you know, the Puritan Reformed is a publishing house. There's all kinds of publishing. Well, one publishing house, Christian Public is called David C. Cook. Well, this was David C. Cook's, I think it's his father or grandfather. Now listen. In the Old Testament... There is not one sentence that applies to the Christian. In the Old Testament, there is not one sentence that applies to the Christian. Ladies and gentlemen, that's dispensationalism. That's not covenantalism. Not one sentence. Not one sentence. So all of you who like Psalm 23... Forget it! Psalm 51, a great psalm of penitence. Stop reading that! And then there's Isaiah 53, most messianic passage in the entire world. Go read that stuff! And David and Goliath, oh, that's not for you! Not one sentence in there. Not one sentence for the Christian. So what did I say about, we're going to say the New Testament started here, and this is all the Old Testament. Just forget it. Because there's not one sentence back here that is intended for you. And what did I say is back here? What did I say is the finest, greatest, most comprehensive description of the first person of the Trinity? <gasps> the Old Testament. So you've been told, not one sentence back there for you, and then you wonder, why don't I know anything about God the Father? Because dispensationalism told you, don't even read it. Not for you. And if you're a radical dispensationalist, you would even say the Sermon on the Mount is not even for you. Because that came before the Holy Spirit descended. And the age of grace didn't start until Pentecost. So, what am I trying to do? I'm just trying to balance the books. I'm just trying to introduce you to the one that Paul said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter, what do they know? What do Peter and Paul know? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, and then there's that statement of Jesus. Came right out of Jesus' mouth. Hebrews chapter 10 says, I'm here. To accomplish the will of my father. Well, who in the world is he? I don't know him. Because he's back here. Or at least largely described back here. So. 
Now, gang, um, you may disagree with what I'm saying. That, that's fine with me. Uh, you know, I'm, Gracie Van is not about agreement. We're not trying to make everybody quack like the same little duck. But when it comes to not knowing the first person of the Trinity, at least you know why I blame dispensationalism. In which most of you were raised. I had, um, I'll tell you who it is. Um, <laughs> Jim and Tammy. <laughs> no, not that Jim and Tammy. Our Jim and Tammy. <laughs> gotcha. Um, they came from a Church of Christ background. And they said in their world, no one would have ever dreamed of preaching from an Old Testament text. That's dispensationalism, ladies and gentlemen. That is run amok. And the people who get harmed by it are the people of God who've got this mm, skewed version of who the, thri the triune God is and then when I come and show you 1 Corinthians 15, 28, that everything's going to be subject and Jesus is going to be sitting there. What? What? I didn't know. I have never heard that. I don't know that. That's because we've forsaken the number one commentary on the first person of the Trinity being the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to read you one quote and I'm finished. Gang, um, uh, I've said this before. I think, I, I think you've heard me use this name. Uh, Stephen Sharnock, C-H-A-R-N-O-C-K, he's a Puritan. And um, uh, when it comes to books that are devoted to the first person of the Trinity, there are very few out there. There are probably five or six that, that we could mention. But, the, um, but kind of the standard work on the first person of the Trinity, and if you read the other guys who have written 200 years later, um, you, you will <laughs> you'll find Charnock in there all the time. Charnock is kind of the, the go-to, you know, kind of the, the uh, default mode. But this is, uh, and the, um, his, his book was entitled The Existence and Attributes of God. And I found it one time, and, and I wish I'd have bought it, but they, they wanted like $65 for it, and I wasn't going to spend $65 for it because, I mean, it's a, it's a massive tome. But this is just one couple of three sentences from Charnock's book. It's talking about God the Father, and he says, Conceive of him as excellent without any imperfections. Spirit without parts. Great without quantity. Perfect without quality, everywhere without place, powerful without members, understanding without ignorance, wise without reasoning, light 
without darkness. Tell me, have you ever conceived of God the Father like that? Have those things crossed your mind? They did Peter and Paul. Because when they got ready to influence people, their first sentence out of their mouth was, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just just trying to balance the landscape, ladies and gentlemen. I hope this will help. Our Father... We are saddened that we have neglected um, the one whose plan of redemption Jesus executed. He himself being the one who said, I've come to do the will of my Father, my meat my food is to do my father's will would you lord allow us to discover just a measure of balance in a very skewed theological environment would you bring us to the place where we will not toy with god in his three persons ever again and that our whole view of you might change and thus a different measure of holiness might that become ours might we be a people who um like David, tremble in your presence. And might we also at the same time know what it means to laugh because the God before whom we stand is a God who has made every provision necessary for us to feel safe in your presence. We commit ourselves to that, Father, in these coming weeks. Help us to do it. Help us to get there. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Uh,